so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. can't think of two more relevant groups that the enemy has successfully kept divided than our rural and urban populations. The hand that waves the flag, the Confederate flag, when it releases its grip, and the clenched fist of black idolatry must both be nailed to the cross on which our Savior died. And each must drop something, a loyalty to this world to do so. The phrase, out of sight, out of mind, shouldn't be a reality in the lives of Christians as we think about others' suffering. This is especially true of the persecuted church. So at our MLK 50 conference, Karen Ellis shared a message titled, To the Ends of the Earth, The Great Commission, The Global Persecuted Church, and Racial Unity. We hope this message leads you to pray consistently for our brothers and sisters around the world. His prison cell was small. It had no bed, so he slept on the floor. Two threadbare blankets lay crumpled in the corner, promising a comfort they never intended to deliver. His cell was not just small, it was monotonous. The only disruption in the concrete walls was a heavy metal door, cool to the touch. And for most hours of the day, the cell was dark, which made the walls feel even closer. It had one tiny window close to the ceiling that stood like a mocking sentinel prohibiting light and sanity from entering. And with his eyes closed, He could hear the whispers of those who prayed in this cell long before him. Thieves, whores, murderers, rapists, the guilty and the innocent. And as time pushed him further into his solitude, he imagined Christians praying across history. In my trials, Lord, walk with me. In my trials, Lord, walk with me. Lord, 
want Jesus to walk with me. And the man in the cell is named Ali Bualu. The place is Morocco, and in his former days, he was a secret service agent to the king of Morocco. But on this day, he is a criminal, and his crime is secretly following Christ. You see, in solitary, you must keep your mind active, which is difficult because in solitary, the mind wanders. So he meditated on whatever scripture his young Christian mind could recall. And he took his greatest comfort in the word of God, recalling snippets over and over and over again. He often imagined the face of his wife, the faces of his children. He thought of others of the faith, praying for them all. And eventually, in his mind's ruminations, he recalls something an underground brother had put in his hands just two months before his incarceration. Somehow, across the span of history and over thousands of miles, in a land where most media is controlled, into this pair of Moroccan hands was passed Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail. And though that letter was addressed to a specific issue, a specific place, people, and time, Ali thought that if Dr. Martin Luther King could bear the solitude of a prison cell and occupy his mind, then perhaps he could too. It helped remind him that some things are worth sacrificing for, even dying for, And for Ali, that was Christ. After all, it was the first half of Christ's command that led Ali to his cell in the first place. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And because Ali was faithful to this command, the promise inside it became manifest when he needed it most. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. In that cell that was cold and dark and small, Ali's Christ was immense and limitless and yet still intimate and near. Ali found the Prince of Peace who overcomes injustice, and he began to share that peace with those around him once he was released from solitary. As one notable human rights advocate observed, it is a paradox that prison can be a liberator. Ali Bualu insisted tonight that I say his name because he says he wants to be included in tonight's record of Christian perseverance. He's no longer in Morocco, but he wants us to know that he has always admired the lives of African-American Christians. And for me, as an African-American woman who's both a descendant of slaves and of significant Christian actors in civil rights history, I appreciate his acknowledgement on a deep and profound level because his interest gives redemptive meaning to our suffering. 
It shouldn't surprise us that the global persecuted church takes comfort from the African-American Christian experience. If we're to understand the connection between the Great Commission, the global persecuted church, and racial unity, I need you to travel back with me long before the letter from Birmingham jail reached Morocco's prison, across the oceans of history, to find the seeds of faith embedded in European slave ships. If we start there, it will be natural to see a family resemblance to the global underground. Religious freedom was often the casualty of the extreme regulation of America's earliest slave laws. And many of these laws created stories of their own. As early as 1680, states restricted the ability of slaves to travel and gather without written permission or supervision. And these laws would limit hundreds of itinerant, enslaved Christian preachers from shepherding their congregations on surrounding plantations. Punishment for the offense was 20 to 30 lashes on one's bare back. For most Christian leaders, their ordination papers consisted of a lacework etching of scars up and down the back of the body. And so the African-American preacher repeatedly endured flogging just to tend his flock. So this gives a much deeper meaning to the old song because the old preacher, if he didn't praise him, the rocks would cry out, glory and honor, glory and honor. He didn't have time to die because there was kingdom work to do. For example, there's the 1836 account of the preacher named George who had been told to cease his itinerant preaching or suffer the consequences for his crime of preaching and shepherding and baptizing. George was burnt alive within one mile of the courthouse at Greenville, South Carolina. The slaves were gathered from a district of 20 miles around and forced to watch him burn to death, which made certain that his congregants would be among the assembly. Numerous other states enacted similar legislation, and so religious liberty violations continued unabated, a harsh consequence of socially acceptable race-based slavery. If you don't believe that evil and sin can be systemic and institutional, affecting every area of life and requiring participation at every level of society, let religious liberty violations be your teacher tonight. I do not rehearse these laws to draw attention to Satan's destruction. I speak of them to draw attention to Christ's victory in their midst. And as we look at these abuses against the first freedom, religious freedom, we realize that Christ's promise is true, that he will build his kingdom. And the gates of hell and legislation and racism and ethnocentrism and political idolatry and heresy will not prevail against its advance. These religious freedom violations produced something remarkable persevering communities of Africans, Europeans, and indigenous Native Americans, an ethnically diverse minority underground Christian community operating in stealth under cultural hostility. 
These underground communities were shaped by a distinctly other cultural and other political identity and agenda. Theirs was not an American Christianity, but rather a Christianity in America, for these saints knew they were just passing through. The 1700s brought us a model persevering community, literate Africans, Ignatius Sancho, Otoba Kugoano, Equiano, Philippe Kwakwe, Reverend Samson Ockham, an indigenous American, and European barristers, Granville Sharp and Anthony Benazay, and many other ethical Europeans who were all centered around the great African-American poet and theologian Phyllis Wheatley. They wrote theology, They did apologetics. They funded mission to Ghana and Sierra Leone. They shared the gospel in the safe havens for free Africans in the New World. They smuggled endangered Africans and Native Americans to safety, from poetry to treatises to legal briefs to sermons. By their very existence, these ethnically diverse underground Christian communities spread Christianity in America, not American Christianity. Their very existence indicted the unethical society and church that surrounded them so that men and women throughout history really are without excuse. They were not the only ones. Similar communities of brave men and women sprung up through history and throughout the new world, ministering as unified, subversive communities. They understood that Christ dignified all human beings, even their persecutors. My own confessional tradition acknowledges the possibility of such a persevering presence. It teaches that despite human error and impurity, there will always be a church on earth to worship God according to his will, a universal church that has sometimes been more and sometimes less visible. The 1800s brought us strict Sabbath laws that differed from state to state, and African Christ followers often found themselves horrifically tortured for breaking these unbiblical Sabbath restrictions. One Christian woman recalled returning home from her worship meeting later than curfew. She was punished by being rolled in a wooden barrel with nails pounded into it, penetrating her flesh with each nauseating turn. And inside that barrel, as she prayed fervently for her own physical deliverance, she also prayed for the deliverance of her tormentor, believing that he must surely be tortured far worse than she. In the Deep South, white and black missionaries recall their Christian Sunday school being set ablaze by terroristic clansmen, with the students still inside foreshadowing the agenda of the militant anti-Christian, anti-education Boko Haram in today's Nigeria. The 1900s brought the full-blown cancer called Jim Crow, with cultural violations of religious freedoms, with the systematic bombings of churches that would likely impress today's Hindu, Islamic, and Buddhist religious extremists. It's ironic that such abuses occurred in the latter 20th century in plain sight of the 1948 Declaration of Human Rights, designed, by the way, by Ralph Bunch, a black man well familiar with human rights and religious rights abuses of Jim Crow. But back to the underground. To say that the church in America has never been united is not entirely accurate. 
it was united in this sense, it often functioned together as a subversive underground network. These small pockets of communities dot the landscape of world history. Men and women who risked everything to live the truth of God's word, even as others undermined it. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And this, underground Christians speak to us in our current cultural moment. They tell us that ethnic divisions are not too great a gulf to bridge while carrying out the Great Commission. What else can our ancestors teach us today from the underground? <laughs> There's always a cultural moment beyond the one in which we find ourselves. It would be wrong to name America's rise in anti-Christian hostility as persecution. It is not but it would also be foolish to deny that anti-Christian sentiment is rising in America today. Whether Christians in America are being judged for righteousness or unrighteousness, for scandal or for fidelity to Scripture, we are all being judged by those outside the community. And Christians of all ethnicities are now learning the lesson that black folk learned a long time ago, that we're all judged by the most outrageous or scandalous among us, even if we disagree with them. Today, if one names the name of Christ in biblically consistent terms, whether one does good or not, no matter how peacefully one lives, many of us will be dismissed as just another dirty Christian. Whether it's the church of the political left and right, or the church of the cultural left and right. It seems many have absorbed the broken political and cultural morality of the world around us. And because of this, I hear an echo of our underground ancestors in America, and it lingers in the air. And many of us, we have heard it throughout this conference, Many of us now realize that politics and culture have their limitations. While culture and politics are important for the Christian, they are not ultimate. This underground echo, historical and global, reverberates on the ground with the men and women ministering on the margins of society where life and death decisions are being made. Ordinary, indigenous local churches who know, love, and understand their people, their communities, their struggles, their obstacles, their concerns. One of my favorite theologians has wisely observed that throughout church history, renewal doesn't come through isolated thinkers with their grand platforms and their great names their numerous books, but rather in the church, through the everyday activity of ordinary people on the ground, through an appreciation of the continued empowerment by word and sacrament, which creates in each age a church worthy to hear the word and receive the body and blood of Christ. And so, 
even at this conference, there seems to be a, a quiet conversation unfolding that anticipates the future of Christianity in America. This conversation anticipates something far different than the next political party, the next hashtag, the next social or cultural movement, and it's far too complex to fit on the front of a T-shirt. We have leaders among us who scandalously still seek discipleship from death to life scandalously seek discipleship from foolishness to wisdom, from destruction to repair, even praying for the conversion of those who hate and threaten and betray them. You are few and you are quiet, but we see you. You have done much hard work that already unifies, changing institutions and churches and organizations to right past wrongs so that there is an alternative witness to the broken systems of the world. As we consider race, religious liberty, and the Great Commission, come now with me to the margins. Meet me at the crossroad of brokenness and sanctification where the church has always found its most potent expression of unity. I commend to you tonight those among us who have learned to survive as Abel's in a world of Cain's. To those ministering to the trafficked in our port cities, to the former prostitutes and the former pimps, and to our incarcerated missionary theologians, bringing hope in the hardest, most violent and desperate places. Christ's promise is still true. I am with you always. To those ministering in urban and rural places, where America feels more like a third world country than a superpower, where you face dysfunctional cultures produced by poverty and dehumanizing systems, Christ still promises, I am with you. To ministers on the hard ground of university college campuses, where issues of identity and significance are challenged and shaped by forces that our forefathers and mothers could never have imagined, Christ is with you. In Fairfield, and Montgomery, Alabama, who just last year buried a young urban martyr killed in the midst of her calling. Shout out, Strong Tower Montgomery. Christ is with you. In Camden, New Jersey, the peacemakers are out on the block where in just six years they brought radical renewal to entire government structures and peace to a once violent community. Christ's life to dry and forgotten bones. He is with you. Philadelphia, engaging the sometimes violent yet broken and confused black conscious community, developing new theology for your unique situations, Christ is with you. Christ is with you, Bonton, South Dallas, and Chattanooga, Tennessee, 30 years each spent renewing dead land with your urban farms anticipating the trees of glory with healing for the nations and feeding your people. Christ is with you. Christ is on the ground with the local church in rural Appalachia, in West Virginia, in spiritually gutted places like Tappahannock and Charleston, making disciples and extinguishing one by one the torches of rage and self-glorification and white nationalism. In Memphis, Flint, 
Chicago, Detroit, East LA, the Bronx, from Jackson, Mississippi, all glory to Lookout Mountain, to Southeast DC, Anacostia in Bemidji, and the plains of the Dakotas, among the disciple makers of the First Nations, saving unwanted babies, unwanted teens, and unwanted grown folk. Christ is with you. He's with you, our Asian, Hispanic, and African brothers and sisters, where God is adding to you immigrants who themselves have fled countries of intense persecution, overcoming corruption, poverty, war, and unimaginable adversity to join his body in America. To all of you, Christ still thunders his final promise, just as he did to Ali Bu'alu in that Moroccan prison. I am with you always to the very end of the age. The hard places have made you nimble. You are explosive and dangerous in your humble subversion. You're not only fighting wars on poverty, you're fighting wars on poverty of spirit as well. For who threatens the pimp and the drug dealer, the Dante's Inferno of mass incarceration, Big Pharma's opioid pushing more men than women? Who threatens them more? than men and women who will risk their lives to free captives from the grip of dehumanization, exploitation, and despair. What these persevering communities are doing is not dominionism. It is not an imprecise ecumenism. It is not cultural Marxism. It is not social justice for mere social justice sake. It is not colonization. It is not gentrification, nor is it the isolationism of Benedictine monks. It is the glorious global body of Christ making disciples of all nations, creating a transformed people who will give birth to transformed communities, who will transform the systems around them, mending for brief flashes in history the effects of the fall showing the world a preview of the day when all things will be made right. For this is the Christian underground at its core, a spiritually wrought community that indicts the brokenness of the existing world order, changing communities from the inside out. Where everything is broken, the underground whispers, mended. And one day we'll shout, glorify. Some might argue that America doesn't need an underground like those that exist in highly restricted countries. But it's already here. And it has been here. It has always done the work needed that American Christendom failed to do. Christ doesn't send us to the hard places because those in the hard places need us. He doesn't even place us because we need them. Well, we probably do. He sends us to the hard places because desperation makes excellent gospel soil. The local body on the margins, on the frontiers of suffering, if you will, knows this well. Final thought. We recognize that there is only one entity who has been hell-bent on keeping us apart since the inception of this country. And so I ask you this, 
at this juncture of American history, with religious freedom hanging in the forefront of our minds. Who stands to gain the most from a divided church? Who stands to gain from thwarting every effort we make to walk worthy of our call with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? World systems train us still to despise the members of our body and cut them off. But the persevering underground does not answer one culturally bound Christianity with another one. They answer with the reality of the kingdom of God, and so must we. The persevering underground doesn't need to be deconstructed because it wasn't built with human hands. It doesn't need to be decolonized because it's never been conquered, and it never will be. Oh, deliver us, King Jesus, from all forms of partiality. If we allow the global minority church to become the thesis of our prayers, they will become our benediction, a place where all ethnicities meet at the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. I can't think of two more relevant groups that the enemy has successfully kept divided than our rural and urban populations. The hand that waves the flag, the Confederate flag, when it releases its grip, and the clenched fist of black idolatry must both be nailed to the cross on which our Savior died. And each must drop something, a loyalty to this world to do so. America's underground is already choosing a more excellent way between these two communities, finding more in common than not, adjusting their loyalties and defending each other with a love that is not one-sided or self-protective or defensive and making disciples together. I fear some of us won't make it. Hubris, insecurity, fear, anger, resentment, Cultural idols may stop us from understanding that there's a much larger moment at hand. As we bite and scratch and devour and troll and dehumanize each other, our Lord's words indict us. The love of many will grow cold. As I reflect on the global underground, I'm even more grateful for this quiet and hopeful conversation unfolding on America's margins. There are people at this conference far more qualified than I am to tell you how to unite. I am simply here to tell you that as the cultural climate in America continues to sour toward Christianity, we must unite. And history shows us that we can. If anyone has ears to hear, now is the time to find our way to each other. Or as Donnie Trumpet sings, y'all better come on in this house. This is going to rain. <laughs> I'll be the first to tell you the global underground is not perfect. At times, the enemy has distracted it from its kingdom mission, just as it's distracted us. But they are courageous. In my work with them, I have noted that they are courageous enough to love when hate rules the day. The Great Commission 
when practiced in light of the entire counsel of the word of God, is in itself a unifying command given to a unified people with unifying results. Now's the time to learn for our global, historical, and local subversives. There is light in America. It's on the margins. There has always been light in America. And the darkness has never overcome it. Thanks for tuning in to the ERLC podcast. Visit us online at erlc.com or subscribe through iTunes or Google Play. Don't forget to join us next week for Matt Chandler's address at MLK 50.